0: Alright, so we have technically finished the book, um, Be at Leisure, for the understanding of the Lutheran approach to outreach, and we've covered all that, and it's all summarized here, it's kind of a mess there, but um, the point is that uh, outreach begins at the church, and then grows to the family, from the family to the strain, and from the strain then to our occupations and life outside of the church, um, and that most church growth things begin on the outside uh, as opposed to the inside. Uh, so we talked about that uh, at length, and those things are recorded and uploaded as well. Um, I, there was a question last week, or no, uh, two weeks ago, because we had the voters meeting last week, a question on how does this go together with Matthew 28, and maybe ephesians four twelve so I want to address that and talk about those two texts because those bo- both of those texts ephesians twenty eight uh, matthew twenty eight and Ephesians four are oftentimes used to justify or to kind of dismantle this and to justify a totally different understanding of outreach or evangelism uh, and so I want to clear that up by just looking at those texts uh, together so I'm going to use the back side of this board. Um, So before we get into those texts, I want to talk about some bad theology that's come on account of those texts. Some bad language um, that has come from it. That is unhelpful language. So the scriptures tell us to hold to the uh, sound pattern of words that was handed down to us, that we should speak in a way that the scriptures speak, uh, unless there's an absolute necessity to change or to clarify something if there's a controversy. So you get that in the creeds, right? Um, You'll you'll get that in uh, confessional statements where they clarify what, what is being said. But at the end of the day, it's, well, what, what, do, what do the scriptures say? But if we just start to invent words, for the sake of inventing words just to speak in different or novel ways, we have to understand that we're always um, importing some idea or theology with it. So, how many of you have heard the phrase, everyone a minister? Yeah? Wait, raise your hands, because I actually want to see this. Okay, so good, a good number of you. Um, so let me ask, where did you guys hear that? My LCMS church. Okay. <laughs> not this one. Same. Okay, not this one. Uh, yeah, so so that was a big thing. So in 1970, uh, there was a guy by the name of Oscar Foigt, who was an LCMS Lutheran, who wrote a book titled Everyone a Minister. And the two chief texts that he used to support this uh, was... Uh, Matthew 28 and Ephesians 4. Uh, a number of other ones taken out of context, but those are the main ones. Uh, this was in the 70s. And the idea behind it, let me ask you guys, what, was the, what did you learn from that? Or was it just kind of a slogan? Or was was it kind of taught to you guys? No teaching? Uh, same. Okay, so, so the point of this, everyone in ministry is to say, I mean, you would have bulletins that said, um, uh, church, Zion Evangelical Lutheran Church, phone number blah, blah, blah. Minister, every member of Zion or minister or something. And what, what it did is it then took the office of the ministry and then stretched it out to mean everything and everyone. And then every, if everyone is a minister, then what? No one is, right? That, that, that's, how, that's how it goes when somebody says, well, everyone is special. <laughs> Well, then then you've destroyed the definition of special. Not everyone is special. Or everyone is talented. Okay, maybe at different things, fine. But once you take one attribute and then apply it to all, then the the, the specialness of that attribute is now lost if everybody has it. Because now it's not special, it's just a normal thing, right? So you've taken something that's uh, unique and then made it common to all people. And now it's a contradiction. So this is what's happening to... Uh, as well in this teaching, the idea that everyone is a minister then says, well, there is no distinction between the office of the ministry or the pastor and the Christian. And in fact, they're, they're kind of interchangeable. And so the work that is to be done by some sort of office or position or pastor, well, is actually the work of all people and everybody should be doing this. So who's supposed to be telling people uh, about Jesus? Well, everybody is. Um, I'll, I'll clarify these things in a minute. Um, who's supposed to be knocking on doors? Everybody. Who's supposed to be trying to convert people? Everybody. Who's supposed to be reading the lessons in church? Everybody. Who's supposed to be? Uh, on and on and on. Um, and I'm, I'm going to talk about the danger of that sort of idea here in a second. Um, but it went from that uh, to creating vision... Statements and ministry statements and paradigms and evangelism like strategies. Uh, how many of you have heard the terms doing church? Like you've heard you guys have heard it? That's kind of a little newer sort of thing. It's kind of new speak or whatever um, that we do church. Let's do church. What does that mean? I don't know. Um, another one is how about be church? Let's let it, being the church. You've you heard that? How did you hear it? Or what was the context? Uh, Cole, of what What did they mean by it? Did they kind of explain it, or they just it was just a phrase? Yeah, Sunday is very different from every other day. Everywhere we are, we bring the church. Together. Sorry, what was the first thing you said that about Sunday? Sunday is very different from other days. Okay, and so you're supposed to bring the message to everybody. The, the rest of the week. Yeah. So, so that's the thing is, is it's saying, okay, what, is this, what are we doing on Sunday? The idea is that we're gathering together. We're huddling up. We're getting motivated. And then our, the real goal is to go out. Go out and do things. Go, 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 go. And so this is just kind of like a recharge for, for everybody. You just come in. I'm not saying that's what we believe. I'm saying that's what they're teaching come together that's the point of it and it's kind of like a pep talk to like okay keep keep going you guys got to keep evangelizing we got to keep growing the church more and more and more We're, there's people going to hell it, there's so much uh, urgency and anxiety kind of that comes with this you know it's it's a big burden uh, great and heavy weight um so it, this language of like doing church or being the church uh don't just go to church be the church that's what they'll say um, as if going to church is the lame thing to do, like the bad, like the, you're inactive when you go to church, but you've got to be active. And the real uh, focus of the Christian life is in the activity and not being passive and just sitting here on your butts doing nothing. That's the point, right? Um, this idea of leadership or um, missionalism, uh, you'll hear words like missional, we're a missional church or that sort of stuff. Uh, We talked about this last time. The Great Commission. The Matthew 28 text is seen as the Great Commission, and this is for all people. Um, I've heard this as well, evangelical style and Lutheran substance. What does that mean? (laughs) What did you say? (laughs) <laughs> so, oh, so they say alright so we are um, Lutheran substance we have Lutheran doctrine boom we got it on the book we have we have everything right but in practice we are our style is a little different and we are more evangelical in our style meaning we're more uh, light show and screens and smoke machines and things like that. That's the, that's the style. So who cares? You have the right substance, uh, but their style is what matters. And that's what delivers the message. And so that's another thing uh, that kind of comes out of this. And to get people involved in this sort of way. Um, the market-driven Christianity is another thing. Uh, seeker-sensitive services. I, I can go on and on. There's like a whole dictionary of this sort of stuff. Uh, these are all new words. Like you just rewind the clock a hundred years. Nobody has any idea what you're talking about. What a secret service is. Apparently what that is, is it's supposed to be a service that's friendly to um, to heathens, to unbelievers that they walk in and then they say, oh, this is nice. This is quite entertaining. And before you know it, uh, they become Christian. It, it's kind of like putting the frog in in the boiling pot of water. If it's already boiling... They're going to jump out. But if you slowly, slowly heat it up, then they're going to cook themselves and die <laughs> um, without realizing it, right? Well, the, the same sort of thing here. If, if you're too Christian, if you're too Lutheran, well, then people are going to walk in and say, man, you guys are crazy. Baptism? No, that's nuts. The Lord's Supper? Nope, I'm out. And so the point is, well, let's tone it down. Let's water it down. And then we'll like start to raise the Lutheran-ness uh, here. Um, the problem with that is... <laughs> the problem with that is it doesn't work. It doesn't happen that way. Um, you can't you can't slowly make someone Lutheran. Uh, you can't say, "Well, let's omit some of the truth and then kind of uh, slowly teach them later." Rather, you just have what it is. Uh, for example, how do you teach your kids to talk? Let me ask that. You just talk to them. You don't you don't use their language, right? You don't like Anderson has I have no idea what he's saying and, uh, and I don't talk to him the way he talks to me but I talk to him in full sentences and he's learning and in a few few years he's going to pick up those words and then he's going to be repeating it and maybe even sound like me and, and that sort of stuff well the same thing in, in theology how do you teach theology? well you just say it you don't, you don't try to speak at the level or the, the way that people speak <laughs> uh, you just speak and then, and then they'll, they'll learn it um, anyway, uh, we'll get there in, in a moment. This is how Jesus taught his disciples. Uh, he spoke things and they didn't understand it all the time. Um, sometimes he explained it. Sometimes he didn't. But the point is, uh, when it comes to church and, and, and theology, we, we don't want to kind of tone it down in this way. We, uh, by the way, the service, maybe this is the fundamental problem. The service is for who? Christians. For Christians. It's for members of the church. It's not for outsiders. So I know this sounds bad, but I don't care what an outsider thinks of our service. I, I, I don't care. Why, why should we? Because they have no idea. I, I don't expect them to walk in and know what is a good hymn or not. I don't expect them to walk in and know why we sing the Agnus Dei. So I'm not going to change that for them. I mean, you, you guys are way more committed to this. And I'm not saying I don't want the people to come in. Of course I want them to come in. But I want them to learn why. And we're not going to change what we do for the sake of their ignorance. Um, we will gladly teach anybody at any time all the time. Uh, but we're not going to withhold the things that you know and that you desire uh, and re- you'd rejoice in because somebody else doesn't find it meaningful, Right? That's the point. You, it's deeply meaningful to you. It's not deeply meaningful to them. So why are we going to get rid of that? <laughs> right? Okay. Um, this, is, this is the point. Sorry, I've gotten off track here. These are just kind of different uh, uh, sayings here. Let's look at Matthew 28, 16. And I'm going to read you a certain translation here. Okay. Um, Matthew 28, 16, Jesus resurrected. This is right before his ascension. He says, Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee. And this is when Jesus promised them, I'll meet you in Galilee. Uh, The eleven disciples went to Galilee to the mountain where Jesus directed them to go. And when they saw him, they worshipped him as they believed in him, but some doubted. Uh, The this is a little frustrating that the text never tells us what they're doubting, right? So we don't know. I can't, I can't say for certain. I, I don't think they're doubting that he resurrected, but whether they're doubting, I, I don't know. Who knows? Uh, but they doubted something. And then verse 18 says, And so Jesus approached and spoke to them, saying, All authority that is in heaven and on earth was given to me. Therefore, as you go or going, make disciples of all n- nations. The Greek word there is ethnos. So that's where we get the word ethnic, like ethnic food, or um, it's translated as Gentiles or nations. Go to all nations, by ba- make disciples of all nations, by baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, by teaching them to guard all things which I commanded you, to guard, um, sorry, by teaching them to guard all things which I commanded you to guard. And behold, I am with you always f- until uh, the consummation of the age, until the end of the, the age. Uh, so we have Christ. Okay, so we have... So we have here on the mountain, uh, Christ and his ascension, and then uh, the, the eleven. Right, the eleven disciples here, um, and he he ascends and he says this to them, and then he says, "Go and make disciples uh, of all nations." I want to get to this word disciples real quick. Oh, let actually, let me do this. Uh, disciples. Um, Okay, so you have, uh, who's, who's speaking? It's Christ. Who is he speaking to? The 11. The 11. Uh, and he gives them a charge here, and you, you can translate this a, a couple of different ways, but the best way is kind of as you go or going, and it's implied there that they're there to go, uh, that they're, they're being sent for a certain mission. Um, what is the difference between a disciple and an apostle? Apostles have been in the physical presence of Jesus, like called in flesh, and the disciples are following the scriptural words of Christ. Yeah. So, so yeah. Um, maybe there, there's a little broader definition of apostle because uh, the apostle Paul is an apostle, even though he didn't live at uh, or he wasn't a Christian when Christ was in his, um, uh, during his earthly ministry. But the, the bottom line is that the word apostle means sent. One that is sent to go. And disciple means one that learns or a follower. Ah. And so that's the difference. And we don't want to confuse the two. So these apostles or d- disciples are then from here on out. There's a change and they're called apostles. From here on out, so you have the apostle Paul, the apostle Peter, the apostle James, and so on and so forth. Um, and and there's a difference. Were were all of the apostles disciples? Yes, they were all disciples at one point for three years. Are all of the disciples apostles? No. That that's the point. The problem with saying everyone a minister is what. D- Demolishing the difference between a disciple and the apostle, so yes, the disciples were disciples for one point in, the, in time, but then the Lord made them apostles by giving them a specific charge, and then He tells them to go and do something specific, and He says, "Go and baptize and teach the way you, the way you apostles make disciples is by baptizing and teaching uh, so it 's through this very act uh, that it 's done and that we baptize in this is beautiful. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Uh, grammatically, what should it say? Stand up. No. In the, names. In the, name of the Father. names. It should say names, right? If it's going to be consistent, because what? There's three names, so you have to have the plural. But it says name, singular. And then it goes on to say Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's beautiful. Um but that's, that's, a, that's what the apostles are sent to do. And from that moment on, they're to go out into the world. And they have this unique calling. Um, so now the ones who were disciples became apostles. And then the apostles then are sent to make disciples by teaching them to observe everything that God has commanded. Uh, and there is that, that distinction remains. Uh, we see this in 1 Corinthians 12. Uh, we don't have time to read it. But uh, are all apostles are all prophets. But, but the anticipated answer is no, it's in, in the negative. No, not all are apostles, not all are prophets, not all. So that's, that's the bottom line there. Um, I want to tell you that this text, Matthew 28, in recent years has become sort of the uh, text for the everyone a minister idea. And it's become the text for evangelism nowadays in our churches. So that a lot of Lutheran churches in the LCMS have taken Matthew 28 and said, well, this applies then to all people. And this is the great commission for the whole congregation. But uh, let me ask you this. How do you think the Lutheran church used this text um, before 1970? Yeah, at ordinations. It was, the way that Lutherans understood this was, and, and throughout... Church history, uh, really up until the uh, uh, 60s, 50s and 60s is when it started to change. It was always used for the ordination. It was it was an Christ instituting the office of the ministry. And I'll show that to you here. Uh, in the Lutheran Confessions, Matthew 28 is a proof text for establishing the pastoral office uh, in the church. Uh, have you guys... Read the treatise on the power and primacy of the Pope. Anyone's read this? Yes. Okay. Uh, so this is a really wonderful doctrine um, or teaching in in the um, uh, in the Confessions, and it's about say, it's saying that the a power to ordain does not belong with the Pope, but it belongs to the church and so on and so forth. And then it goes on and it lists this. It says, the error of the second article, the second of three papal claims that the Pope has both secular as well as ecclesiastical power. What's going on here is uh, Pope Boniface, I think the second, said that the Pope has power over both realms. That is, he can... Uh, um, assign spiritual punishments like excommunication and as well as physical punishments like uh, fines or being jailed or being tortured. That the Pope had that authority uh, over, over everything. I mean, no, no one has ever had this sort of authority. So the Lutherans fought against this and said, no, that's not the authority that Christ is giving. He's giving you the power of the word and not the power of the sword. The power of the sword he has left to the government, uh, Romans 13 and, and others. Um, so it says, uh, so this, the three papal claims that the Pope has uh, secular and ecclesiastical power is even clearer than the error of the first. For Christ gave to his apostles only spiritual authority. That is the command to preach the gospel, right? To preach the gospel, uh, to proclaim the forgiveness of sins, to administer the sacraments, this is part of it too, um, to excommunicate the ungodly without the use of physical force. He did not give them the power of the sword or the right to establish or take possession of or dispose of the kingdoms of the world. And then uh, the Confessions, Melanchthon who writes this, uh, lists a number of passages and the first one there is Matthew 28. So, you have the treatise that says Matthew 28 is for the office of uh, the office of the Holy ministry so already the Lutheran confessions say that hey this text um, is about uh, pastors preaching and teaching the word okay uh, also Martin Luther used Matthew 28 to talk about what Everyone a minister or what? That There is such a thing as the pastoral office. Um, Luther's commentary in Psalm 82 uh, in verse one, he says this, God has taken his place in the divine council. And then Luther comments on how important it is that God appoints priests and uh, preachers uh, to whom he's given the duty to teach and exhort and rebuke and comfort and so on. Um, and then... Uh, And to also to preach the word. And then he quotes there what text? Matthew 28. He quotes that again. So you have the the confessions. You have Luther himself, who now uses this. Uh, Martin Chemnitz, are you familiar with him? Uh, Comes after Martin Luther, keeps the Reformation alive. And uh, they said the work of Martin Luther would have failed if Chemnitz didn't come after him. Uh, that he was that influential and kept this going. So uh, an amazing guy. There's a book he wrote called The Inchiridion. Do you know what that is? It's, it's a little, uh, it just means like teaching manual. It's, it's kind of, it's a catechism. And the point of this book was to go around for the district president and the uh, circuit visitors to have this book, The Inchiridion, and go and test the pastors twice a year. And it's a list of questions. And he goes, and he sits down with them and says, okay, randomly, okay, what, why did Christ ascend? Um, tell us about the descent of Christ into hell. Uh, tell us about um, uh, uh, mortal and venial sins, so on and so forth. And it goes through, through this. Well, that's how it's supposed to be used. Do you think it's used that way? <laughs> no, it's not even used at all. It's really sad. If I ever... Um, am demoted to district president. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, if, if I'm ever uh, become a district president, that, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to take that book, The Incorporated, and go to every church and visit twice a year and say, what, what is this? You, you have to know this. Um, it's the most basic thing. Yes? I've said this before, and <laughs> yeah. I'm probably going the same answer, but you know, you guys, when you're in seminary, you know, Luther taught that, you guys are taught that while you're in seminary, right? And you take a vow to follow you know, the confessions the and all this. And, and, and so what happens to these pastors? These Lutheran pastors have been taught all this stuff, and they take that vow. I mean, or else they mess, and he was it, and I'll say, what? They were told me, that's not true. Yeah. How do they, what, I mean, how do they get yeah. in their brains to do that? It's, I don't know. It's hard. I, I don't know. It's either they weren't paying attention, um, or they they just don't believe it, right? Some of them think that, I mean, and I've been places before, but that they've got to bring these people in at all costs. And right. maybe they'll buy that, and that's and they rationalize the means with the, you know, the ends with the means or whatever, I don't know. I'm, so, I'm just wondering because, Yeah. you think that vow? I mean, I would think
1: you'd yeah. get struck right now. With right,
0: well, right, precisely, and and that's that's the thing. I mean, I, I pray this every time before the service, uh, Luther sacristy prayer, and Says, Lord, if if you leave me to myself, I would bring it all to destruction. That's it, God. If you forsay, if you took your hand away from this for one second, the, the church would be in, would be dust. We'd be nowhere. That's it. And the only way I can do this, The only way a pastor can be a pastor is if God is gracious and merciful, and to never think that it's on you. Um, the, the other thing too is, uh, what happened is that. Church theology got mixed with sociology, and business practices, and they thought that the way you make, well, it became this way, that the the way you make a Christian is the way you make a customer, and these things started to mix, and it became very very toxic and bad. And this, and it, you, there, there's some like a lot of uh, reason and and interesting things going on there, but people don't become Christians the way they become customers. We're not selling a product. I have nothing to sell. Peter says, that I had silver and gold, I don't have. I have nothing to give either. What I have is the Word of God. If you want that, I, w- I will tell you it day and night. I will do, give every fiber of my being over to teaching this to you, but I have nothing else to give you, <laughs> right? So, and, and that's very different from this idea that, well, no, maybe, maybe people don't know that they want that. And maybe we can kind of uh, um, not trick them. That's a bad word. But maybe we can entice, entice them. Yeah, entice them into, into wanting this. So we'll put out like some marketing things. Again, fine. Marketing is fine. Put out an, a billboard or advertisement. Fine. Um, if, if you want to do that. But don't think that that's the way, or the only way, or the best way to make Christians, right? Um, what happened is this took over everything. And then it started to say, well, just like a store has to be palatable and welcoming to a, a customer and give them a certain experience, so too we want to do that in the church. And so we, wanna, we, have this, we have one shot to sell them the product that we're selling. And th- that's wrong. That's wrong. I mean, that's so wrong. Um, this is not the way the apostles preach or Christ speaks or anything. And this is unknown in all of church history. The mixing of sociology and business practices with the church, that making Christians, that is unheard of for the history of the world, except until the 70s, right, the 60s and 70s. I mean, it's a lot of weird things are happening at that time, and that's one of them. And so... So I think a lot of guys will get swept up in this. And, and it, it, think about it. Think about what's going on here. The pastor's life, his livelihood, his family depends upon the generosity of the congregation. And, and the thing that he's doing, he's preaching is free. And he does this for free. And then God has, has promised to take care of him and give him his daily bread. Now, what happens when you see those numbers start to go down? then what are you going to do? You're going to try and take it into your own hands. So um, what I'm saying here is that I, I understand. I understand the fear that a lot of the church growth pastors are going through when they see their churches dwindle, and they're trying with all their might to stay alive. And so they, I, I think it's with the best intention. I think they're motivated in the right way. That they say, look, I, I want to keep this church alive. We've got to figure something out. So I'm not ascribing malice to them. I don't want to do that. But at the same time, um, you're putting your trust in man and in reason and not in the word of God. What I would tell those guys is to say, keep preaching. Just like Peter kept putting his net into uh, empty water uh, and then Jesus says, do it again. For the thousandth time, he does it, and then his nets are breaking, right? Just keep preaching. Don't give up. Just preach, preach, preach. Uh, and then let people find joy in the Word of God, and, and don't try and entice them or persuade them, right? I can't persuade anyone to be a Christian. I know that. Um, I, I'm, not, I, I don't have, I'm, I'm not a businessman. I would, be, I would fail terribly. If somebody says, no, I don't want that, okay. <laughs> I, I can't, I can't do that. I'm, I'm not, I don't have that personality to be like, no, you have to. I, it's, if you want it, you want it. If you don't, you don't. Okay, here's the word of God. I think it's amazing. I think you should think it, it is too, but. Um, so, so anyway, yeah, let, let me move on here. Uh, but, but the point here with Chemnitz is he's, with this Inchiridion, he's talking to pastors and he's teaching them and reminding them what the scriptures say. He says this, what then is the office of ministers of the church? So this is under the section of the office of the ministry, and this is how the pastor is to answer. He says, this office or ministry has been committed and entrusted to them by God himself through a legitimate call. That is through a congregation that God calls people through a congregation. One, to feed the church of God with the true, pure, and salutary doctrine of the divine word. And then he quotes Ephesians 4.11, to administer and dispense the sacraments of Christ according to his institution. And what text does he quote? Matthew 28. Um, And then to administer rightly the use of the keys of the church or of the kingdom of heaven by either remitting or retaining sins, John 20, to fulfill these things with the whole ministry, uh, 2 Timothy 4. On the basis of the prescribed command, which the chief shepherd himself has given his ministers in his word for instruction. And then he quotes again, Matthew 28, 20. So again, now Chemnitz is saying that Matthew 28 is about the office of the ministry. C.F.W. Walther, the first president of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod here in the States. He writes in his book, Church and Ministry. He writes, Christ clearly and plainly shows the power of the ministry which he instituted when sending out his apostles. And then he goes on to cite Matthew uh, 28, 19 through 20. Um, Also, the Lutheran hymnals and the agendas. Every single Lutheran hymnal and uh, Lutheran agenda for the service has uh, the ordination of pastor... Um, in in the rite of ordaining a pastor, has the text of Matthew twenty eight. So if you let's see, okay, the Holy Ministry Ordination one sixty. So go to, well. This isn't in your hymnals, actually. Um, <laughs> sorry, this is this is the agenda, but this is in. This happened for me eight years ago uh, when I came to Zion. And one of the texts that was read here is uh, Matthew 28. Um, Yeah, so Ephesians 4, 11 through 12, and then Matthew 28. And then this is on the institution of the office of the ministry. Uh, Here it says, on the institution of the office, Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority on earth, uh, heaven and earth, has been given to me. And he goes, he he continues. Um, So we have the Lutheran. Lutheran agenda, which says that Matthew 28 is about that. Um, I, these are just some of the examples, but I want to show you the difference. <clears throat> Nowadays, Matthew 28 is applied to all Christians. Throughout Lutheran history, Matthew 28 was applied to pastors. Yeah, to the, to the office of the ministry. So then the question is, how did that happen? When did that switch happen? And we have to say, well, why have we departed from I don't know, I think it's wise to kind of listen to these guys, Uh, they're pretty smart. Uh, Those who wrote the confessions, Luther, Chemnitz, Walter, even the agenda, uh, that they've used this text in that specific way. Why did we depart from that? And if we depart from that, we should have a really good reason as as to why we're doing that. I want to tell you why is is this so crucial? I'm not just kind of splitting hairs here. the, the Bible teaches that there are only two vocations in the church, uh, main vocations. You can kind of split this up into apostles, prophets, things. But the, the main distinction and the two vocations are preacher and hearer. We see this in Revelation chapter 1 verse 3 says, uh, Blessed are those who read the words of this book aloud and those who hear it. So there's a distinction there. Um, Paul tells Timothy in chapter 4, verse 13, he says, uh, devote, uh, Timothy, who's a pastor, uh, Timothy, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture. He, tells, he gives this command to the pastor to do. So t- tell me, why, why is it that now this text has been taken to mean something else, to say, well, then everybody should read the lessons in church? Um, regardless of of, uh, teaching or training or anything. Why is it that uh, the work of the ministry is now something that all are supposed to do and not the pastor? Um, So the the danger here, what this does is it's a very subtle shift in theology. It goes from being passive and hearing the word of God to what? To being active. To saying, now instead of focusing on what God is doing for you, you have to now focus on what God is doing through you. <laughs> that sounds very similar, but there's a big shift. That's subtle, but that's a big shift. To say, um, what is God doing through me? Well, He's evangelizing the world, He's converting people, this and this. Uh, I, I told you this about the first Bible study uh, here at Sion. Uh, they were. Um. Everybody was studying the purpose-driven life, um, evangelism explosion, and these sort of things. And at the first Bible study ever here at Zion, I asked, "What is the gospel?" And they said, "What?" Sorry. The word of God is gospel. Yeah. They uh, more specifically, what did they say? What do you think they said? When I first got here. They said the, the, the gospel is sharing the good news of Jesus. Okay. That's not the gospel. Who's doing that? Right? That's you. You're, you're doing that. So now that's what God is doing through you. But now the word gospel took on a totally different meaning. And leaves. What, what's the good news of Jesus? And then I ask that. Well, what's the good news of Jesus? Well, isn't that the good news? And then I tell them uh, the gospel is that. God sent His only begotten Son to breathe His last for you, to pour out His life for you, and then their their eyes were filled with tears. And it's not that they didn't know it; it's they didn't hear it. Um, what happens? One of the problems here, what happens with this church growth stuff, is that everything that becomes the center and the focus is: Are you are you supposed to make a confession before men? Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, always be. Prepared to um, give a reason for the hope that you have in you. You should always be prepared for that. But if if every sermon ends with, now go and tell somebody about Jesus, and that's the focus, that's the whole thing, uh, then you lose sight of what God is doing for you. And rather now it's about what you ought to do, what you ought to do. And it sounds good because you're supposed to be talking about Jesus, but it's really the law and there's no comfort there. And it's going to continue over and over and over again. Um, and so very subtly, the emphasis of preaching took a turn. And it went from focused on Christ, what he does for you, to focused on you and what you do for Christ. And that's bad. Uh, again, it's, it's not bad. It is not bad to say that you ought to make a confession before the face of men. Absolutely. The Bible says that. Um, it's bad to make every single text that. <laughs> I've, I've heard sermons over and over again on the miracles of Jesus. And the point is, uh, almost every single text is, every, every sermon uh, turns into, well, now you have to go spread the good news of Jesus. Go, go and do this and this and this. Um, I've, I've told you that the approach of Lutherans is very different. It's simply uh, tell you what is true and then out of joy you'll just do it. Um, it'll come up in your conversations and without even uh, making that the, the point. Okay, let me, let me move on from this real quick. I want to get to the second text. Uh, so that's Matthew 28. Uh, throughout Lutheran history, it has always been referring to the office of the Holy Ministry. So that the work of the ministry, that Matthew 28, is not really a slogan for all Christians to then take. And, it's not the Great Commission. Rather, it is something that Christians should rejoice in to say, God will not leave me alone. Uh, When he says, and Lord, I'm with you always. Well, how is he going to be with us always? It's through the preaching and the teaching and through the sacraments. And he says, there, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. There he promised. What did he promise in those words? Will this ever go away? It may go away from here, from a comfortable distance, but it's never ultimately going to go away in the world. Uh, That's Revelation talks about this too. But that the word of God is always going to be preached rightly somewhere. Somewhere. And the thing is, go find it. Uh, We would rejoice that it's so convenient that it's right here in Winter Garden. But if it were five hours away, then we should get a bus and we go there. And then we find it. Because I don't want to live without that. But his promise is that somewhere in the world there will be Christians who are teaching Rightly. And, and preaching the word will never be left without the gospel, even in the darkest times of the medieval times and in the time of the Reformation, the gospel was never completely lost. Uh, Lutherans are not restorationists, right? We're we're not saying that that we, for, fifteen hundred years we didn't have the gospel, and then all of a sudden Luther, uh, uh, in, invented it or found it, and then now for the first time after, a thousand years, no. We, the gospel has always been preached. It's been muddied. It's been covered. But somebody in the world has always been preaching the truth and always been preaching the forgiveness of sins through Christ. Okay, let me move on to the next text quickly. Um, the other text is Ephesians 4.12. And I want you to read this or I'll read it to you. And this is about Christ's ascension. And he says, And he, gave, he himself gave the apostles and the prophets and the evangelists and pastors and teachers. So Christ gave um, the apostles um, what did he say? prophets uh, and then he goes pastors I, I already told you about the distinction between pastor and teacher here it's not that you're teaching history or, or language or things. It's, it's teaching theology. That's why Christ ascended, um, not to give us uh, uh, teachers of, of anything. Again, it's not saying that teaching is a bad job or it's lowly. That's not the case. It's just saying, what did Christ give? He gave uh, teachers of theology. So this would be like professors of theology, things like that. Okay, uh, so Christ gave apostles, prophets, evangelists, te- uh, pastors, and teachers. These are in the concrete. This is solid, tangible things. Um, Some translations, I think, will put it this way, that God gave certain gifts to men, and that some of those gifts are the gift of apostleship, or uh, gift of prophesying, the gift of evangelism, and the gift of pastors and teachers. And then what do you think came from that interpretation? Yes, thank you, Seth. Uh, spiritual gift inventory. So then you take a test. It's kind of like a personality test. Personality tests are fine, all that stuff. But it's, that, again, was ushered into theology to say, well, now um, we have to figure out what, what category you, you fall under. Do you have the gift of uh, apostle, uh, apostleship? Do you have the gift of prophesying? Do you have the gift of evangelism? And most people fall in that. Uh, the gift of pastor and teacher. I remember I was at a Lutheran church, and they did this. I think it was for the children's sermon. And they um, they had the spiritual gift inventory. And then the next, the next Sunday, uh, the kids came back, and the pastor asked, like, okay. He asked this little girl. He's like, okay, well, what did you get on your test? She's like, I, I got the gift of pastor. <laughs> I was like, I don't think this thing works. Um, so... This this is the, the problem, right? It it kind of categorizes people into these things, um, but that's not what his ascension is. It's not giving us the nebulous gift of the personality traits of evangelizing. He gave us Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. That's what he gave us. He in in text, he gave us the prophets. He gives Elijah. He gave us uh, 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 um, Isaiah. Uh, he gave us the apostles. He gave us pastors and teachers. And look, as, as much as, these are great gifts from God, the apostles. I, I can't imagine what it would have been to, been like to talk to one of these guys. An amazing gift. Um, or the prophets, the way they, uh, Elijah uh, spoke and, and Moses uh, parts the sea. Uh, the evangelists, what they wrote down in Scripture. Um, and who's included in this? A gift also is the pastor that God, the Scriptures join them together and say this is on the same level. Now, there's a difference in the way that they became what they are. Uh, and the difference is um, uh, in the mode of the call. So, for example, uh, whether they were called immediately or immediately. So, apostles, prophets, and evangelists were called immediately by God. That is, Jesus appeared specifically to Paul and converted him. He, he told Peter, follow me. The audible voice here. The prophets, he spoke to them in visions and dreams and things. Pa- so this is immediate. Or sorry. Uh, and then this is a mediated call. Uh, so God calls them immediately without means. But he calls pastors and teachers immediately. Meaning uh, through a certain means. And what is the means? Yes, the congregation. I've heard a lot of people say, especially pastors will say this, well, God called me when I was like 18. He just put it in my heart. What does Paul say? He says, that is a noble desire. But, and then he goes on to say, but he must be husband of one wife, and above reproach, and so on and so forth. And then the call comes, the let me put it this way the call is not nebulous. The call from God to be a pastor is not a nebulous thing or just a feeling. It is, it is uh, solid and, and verifiable. It is that, did I want to be a pastor before? Absolutely. I wanted to, I desired that. Um, but even in seminary, did I have a call? No, because nobody wanted me as their pastor. <laughs> right? uh, no congregation was like, we want you. I, I was, I was in no So, who cares if I know the whole Bible, but I don't have a call? When did the call come to me? Yeah, April 30th, uh, 2014 is when Zion called me. And then at that moment, I went from just being a kid who knows a lot of things to saying, now this congregation said they want me. And they, they don't just. They don't even know me. They want me to do one specific thing. They want me to be there and to preach and to baptize their babies and to give them the Lord's Supper and to teach them all that, that God has said. Okay, that, that, that's the call. And what, what, what am I going to do? I can only say, yes no. I cannot, yeah, I can only reject this, right? Because the congregation said, we, we want you. And God is saying through the congregation, you have been called to us. And I can reject it, but I didn't. Um, but the point is, it is from God. That means when a pastor gets a call now, so I've gotten calls here uh, from, to, to other congregations, were those calls from God? No. Yes. Yes, they were. They were divine calls. Yeah, I know. I know. <laughs> uh, we're kind of bitter about those. Um, yeah, th- but they were from God. Meaning that, so I, I got a call to an, another church in Louisiana or, or Indiana or somewhere else. Um, had I taken that call, would it be divine? Yeah. And so the pastor in that moment has this unique position where he has two calls. He has the current congregation that called him that's still divine and a call of another congregation. And in no, in no way is he sinning, if he stays or if he goes, because they're both from God. I, I know it's, it's hard to hear, but it's true. Um, I thank God, right? He led me through all the conversations, all of the things To stay here. I love Zion and I I always have. Um, But if the day comes that I take a call, then it would be as divine as this one, and and so on and so forth. Um, The point is is that God places the man into the ministry. Um, Let me move on real quick here. So he he gives these things again, even though it's done immediately or immediately, it's still from God. Then the text says this uh, He gave himself the apostles, prophets, He himself gave the apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. And then he lists three things for bringing the saints to completion, for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. So, uh, this is their purpose. One, two, three. Um. Okay, so there's three reasons. So he says, here, here are the things, the gifts I've given, and then here are the three reasons that I'm giving them uh, to, um, uh, for, the saint, for bringing the saints to completion, for the work of the ministry, and for the building up of the body of, of uh, the church. Okay, um, there was a controversy with the Revised Standard Version. Let me see when it was made. Oh, in 1952, between 1952, that version, and then the next version, I think in the 1970s, They removed a comma from the text. This is a big controversy. Um, And it changed the meaning of this text. So it said, um, what they did is they said, for bringing the saints to completion, the original says, uh, comma, comma, comma. Again, there's no commas, but this is offset by the grammar in Greek. Anyway, uh, in the English translation, saints to completion, and they removed the comma and joined this together. So that it's all one thing. The saints to completion for the work of the ministry. What does that sound like? Well, everybody's a minister. Yeah, so that the pastor's job is to get the people, the saints, to do what? The work of the ministry. All by removing that comma. Do You see, it, it's like saying... Um, Uh, let's eat kids <laughs> and, and then I take away the comma. Let's eat kids. Right? Very, very different. <laughs> uh, it changes the meaning altogether. Th- the, that's what's going on here. Uh, f- for bringing the saints uh, to completion, comma, for the work of the ministry, third, for the building up of the body. And that translation then has been used. And if you look at all of the church growth uh, books, just read them. And I guarantee you they're going to have the translation that has only two of these clauses. Uh, and they eliminate this. They join them together so that the work of the pastor is to make everybody, do, everybody else do the ministry. Um, and then, uh, so oh, also the word uh, ministry here in Greek is diakonia, which is service. And this is used specifically, uniquely, for the office of preaching and teaching, is the point. Um, this is the, the unique service that the, the Lord has given. So, um, one of the problem, and by the way, for the work of ministry, uh, is this plural or singular? Singular of the ministry. There aren't plural ministries. There aren't many. There's one. The, the problem, I, I'll, I'll finish with this. The problem is if we go ahead and say that there are multiple ministries, that everything is a ministry, everyone is a minister, then you lose in a sea of everything what is then unique. And the truth is, is that God has given uh, the office of the ministry. And he's made this unique above all things. And there are not multiple. A, a school, as great as it is, school, as great as schools are, um, they're not the ministry. Schools are wonderful. We, we need schools. We need good schools. We need good teachers. And then, that's not the ministry. The, because if you say that, then, then it becomes nothing. Uh, but the ministry is one singular thing. And that is that God serves you. That God is coming to you and forgiving your sins and wiping away uh, all of your guilt and imputing his righteousness to you. That is the one service that, we, that is different from all services. It, it's different from, uh, from the labor of teaching or construction or uh, uh, doing anything else. Because in every other aspect, we're serving each other. But in this aspect, we're serving, uh, God is serving us. That's why we call the divine service, the divine service. In, in, in German, it's called Gottesdienst. It means that God is the one serving we don't come to church to serve God. God has come to church to serve us. He's the one who's forgiving. He's the one who's speaking. He's the one who's uh, uh, putting our sins behind him. Uh, he's the one who's proclaiming forgiveness. He's the one who's giving us faith. He's the one who's increasing our love, so on and so forth. So that's the point. And, and the danger of, the danger of uh, pluralizing all of these sort of things and and making them mean everything is that then they mean nothing. And we don't want to lose that. Um, again, I'm not saying that uh, everything else is, is bad or useless. That's not the point. It's just saying uh, that this is something that Jesus gave to us, and we're going to keep it as he said. Um, okay, let me end here.